So please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to look at 25 and 26 tonight. Genesis 25. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and so many times uh, we do have our agenda and our will and desiring control of our lives. And as we've just sung to you, uh, we surrender ourselves afresh to you. Our agenda, our desires, our will. And we want your will because we know that your will is best. You're our good father, you're our dad. And as we read your word tonight, would you speak to us? Would you feed us? Would you help us to see you in a greater way? That you would be glorified and that you would bring fruit in our lives. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that enjoy track and field, one of my favorite events is the relay race because it involves the passing of the baton. And in 2008, our United States Olympic team in the Olympic Games, within 30 minutes, the men's team and the women's team both found a way to drop the baton. And so there we were canceled out of the Olympic Games in these preliminary uh, rounds. And it seems to be a very tenuous moment, doesn't it? As it's being passed, that it's going to be caught. And what we find here is in Genesis 25 and 26, is Abraham has effectively passed the baton to Isaac. That baton of faith, that baton of trusting in God's faithfulness. And God has given this promise to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, the nations of the world are going to be blessed, fulfilled in Christ. And we'll see Isaac laying hold of that faith and making it his own and walking with the Lord, making his own set of mistakes, but continuing to trust and have faith in the Lord. There's a lot of lessons for us in these two chapters. Begins in verse 1, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. If you remember, Sarah has passed away. And so after she passes away, he gets remarried. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So they have these five sons. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashram, Litzim, and Limun. And the sons of Midian were Ephath, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, Elda. All these were the children of Zeturah. I think Isaac won the best name out of Abraham's sons. Isaac is definitely the easiest to be able to pronounce. Abraham was 138 years old when Sarah died, and then he died at 175. So he had uh, several years of marriage there with Keturah. But the focus is upon Isaac because Isaac is the promised child in which this promise is going to pass down to. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac his son to the country of the east. So he cared for these other sons, but he only gives them a gift. And then he wants them to be away from Isaac so Isaac can have room to be able to prosper. And everything that he owns is given to Isaac. In the same way that Jesus is beloved by the Father and everything is given to Christ. All things are given uh, to Christ. In verse 7, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life in which he lived, 
175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. The idea of what's being described here is that Abraham had a full life, good old age, the blessing of the Lord, a full life, and now he's 175 years old and he's gathered to his people. In the book of James, it tells us that Abraham was the friend of God. What a great compliment. From God's perspective, God says, this is my friend. This is someone that was known for fellowship with me. Abraham's life is marked by faith and obedience. He believed the Lord, he trusted God's promises, and he responded in obedience. Was Abraham's life perfect? No. As we've studied his life, he had his failure, his sin, his shortcomings, but he got up and he continued in faith. The Bible commentator, Clark, he sums up Abraham's life this way. Above all else, a man of God. Model and pattern of faith. All that he had was given to him by God through faith. Here's the encouragement. Go, believe, love, obey, and persevere in like manner. Take the lessons of Abraham and say, I want to trust God, I want to love God, and I want to walk in obedience. In verse 9, And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zorah, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. This is the only land that Abraham ever possessed of the promised land. He purchased it to be able to bury Sarah, and now he's buried next to Sarah. But notice who's gathered together at the burial of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael. We don't see them together uh, prior to Hagar and Ishmael being sent out because of Ishmael's jealousy of Isaac being the promised son, but the death of their dad brought them together. And death has a way of bringing us together, doesn't it? And ultimately, it's the death of Jesus Christ that brings us together, that causes us to be able to reconcile, to be able to extend forgiveness because we've received forgiveness, and especially when you have two people appreciating the cross of Jesus Christ. Two people that are focusing on what Christ has done, then that brings uh, reconciliation. The death of Christ brings us together. Verse 11, And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahoye Roy. So here's the passing of the baton. And really, it's God who's passing the baton. It's God taking his blessing that was upon Abraham and now putting it upon Isaac. And Isaac chooses to dwell in Beer Lehoi Roy. Two other things have already happened in this location in the book of Genesis. This is where God heard the cry of Hagar. And this is also where Isaac was meditating when God brought his wife, Rebekah, to him. So this was a special place for him. It's a place where where God had met Hagar. It's a place where God had met him. So he chooses to dwell here. We have this temporary focus on Ishmael in verse 12. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. If you remember... Abraham and Sarah weren't able to have kids, and so Abraham and Sarah decided for him to have a relationship with Hagar, which resulted in Ishmael. So this tracks Ishmael's descendants. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael, 
by their names according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael. I'll let you wrestle through those names during your quiet time. But there's 12 sons uh, that are listed there for us. And we'll pick it up in verse 16. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Sur, which is east of Egypt, and as and east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all of his brethren. So God blessed Ishmael just like he promised. Abraham didn't want Ishmael to, to pass away. God heard the cry of Hagar. And Ishmael's descendants continue on. Twelve sons, twelve princes. It's very similar to the nation of Israel. But it's very clear from God's perspective. We don't see recorded in God's word Ishmael's genealogy continuing to Christ, continuing to the Messiah. Jesus didn't come through the line of, of Ishmael, came through the line of Isaac because Isaac was uh, the chosen child leading to the nation of Israel. But no doubt God having a heart for the descendants of Ishmael. And now who are the descendants of Ishmael today? It's the Arab world, the Arab world. And so very clearly God has a heart for uh, the nations. In verse 19, the focus is on Isaac. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Pandanaram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. We studied that last week, or two weeks ago. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So just like Sarah, Rebekah struggles with barrenness, struggles with not being able to have uh, children. Isaac, to his credit, instead of going and having a relationship with a handmaiden, takes the barrenness before the Lord. Isaac doesn't have a Hagar moment. And he pleads with God and he says, God, would you grant to us a child? Would you allow my wife to be able to conceive? And it's amazing how many barren stories there are throughout the Bible. You know, it seems to come up over and over again as you study the scriptures. And the extra pressure that would be put upon this because of this promise. What if Isaac and Rebekah never have kids? You know, they're supposed to get this thing going and become a great nation. I mean, could you imagine looking at your wife and saying, you know, we're, we're supposed to have kids and we're supposed to make a great nation, right? And they're not having kids and month goes by after month and no conception and Isaac takes that all before the Lord. And I think that this is a great example for us as husbands because the ultimate bridegroom, Jesus, ever lives to make intercession for us, the bride. So be encouraged tonight, Jesus is praying for you. Isn't that cool? He knows your barrenness. He knows your brokenness. He knows the difficulties in our lives. And he's lifting us up before the Father. So for us as husbands, do we know the heart of our wife? Do we know what's weighing upon her and what's difficult for her? And, and the things that she's working through and processing and then pleading before the Lord and praying before the Lord. Guys, it's going to be worth it tonight 
just if our hearts are engaged as husbands to pray for our wives. It'll be more than worth it for this Wednesday night study is to say, yeah, this is what God is is calling me to. There's power in prayer, and I get to be that spiritual covering for, for my wife. And just begin to make that part of your every day to pray for your wife. And if you're doing that, keep it up. And plead before the Lord and say, God, would, would you do a work that only you can do in the heart of my wife? And a lot of times as husbands, we want to fix it, don't we? You know, because we do care for, for our wives. But this is something that Isaac can't fix. This is beyond his control. He needs God to, to intervene. And it's wise of us to understand, you know what, I can't fix it. I'm not the Savior. I'm going to plead before God and ask that God would would intervene. I also think that this provides a great example for all of us, for those that we love, you know? If you have someone in your life that you love and that you care for, and they're going through a hard time, and they're broken, and they're barren, plead before God and ask that God would do a work in their lives. God waits to respond to the prayers of Isaac. He waits, And this is a mystery of God, that God's sovereign and he does what he wants, but he responds to the prayers of his people. And there may be fruit that he wants to bring in someone's life, but he's waiting for us to partner with him in prayer. He's waiting for us to come before him and bring that need before him and for God to to bring forth fruit in in their lives. Verse 22, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She's like, man, if, if all is well, and I'm pregnant, then what in the world is going on inside of me? And she doesn't know that she's having twins, right? And what's so interesting about this is she goes and she inquires of the Lord. She sets an appointment with the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, says, God, there's this weird thing happening inside of my body, and if all is well, then what in the world is going on? And how many times with difficulty and challenge in our lives are we setting an appointment with the ultimate counselor, Jesus Christ? And we're saying, I need time with a friend, or I need this person to sort this out, and great value in godly counsel, but go to the Lord and inquire of the Lord. So here we see this depth of relationship in Isaac and Rebekah in their relationship with God. Isaac's praying for Rebekah, and Rebekah's going to the Lord over this turmoil that is inside of her. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This is the ultimate ultrasound. This is the ultrasound with a word of prophecy, isn't it? God's saying, well, the reason that there's this struggle inside of you is you have twins. And these twins are going to be two separate nations. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Jacob is going to lead to the birth of the children of Israel. He's going to have 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau is going to become Edom, which will be the father of the Edomites. And one's going to be stronger than the other. And it's going to be the younger that's going to be stronger. And the older is going to serve the younger. This is backwards from culture. This is backwards from the way that it normally went. It was the oldest that had the birthright. 
double inheritance, the one that the family followed, the family responsibility, and it was seen that then the younger would serve uh, the older. It's still this way in many parts of the world. If a family can only afford to send one child on to college, it's going to be the oldest. And it'll be the younger children that will even work to support, to put the oldest through, through college. Because there's this privilege that's given to uh, the oldest. But here God flips it on its head and says, no, I'm choosing the younger. And this is God's election. God's sovereign election. He sees all things. He has foreknowledge from the beginning to the end. He knows the heart of Esau, that Esau's heart's not going to be for, for God. And Jacob, though he's not perfect, has a heart for the things of God. So God chooses Jacob instead of choosing Esau. And then as we see their lives unfold, we go, God, you made the right choice. You had all of the information and, and you chose very well to choose Jacob over, over Esau. In this mystery of God choosing Jacob, it's not so much that God wouldn't choose, Jake, choose Esau, but it's that he would choose Jacob. <laughs> that he would even choose to love Jacob because Jacob had deep struggles as well. And isn't that the mystery for us as well? is that God would choose us and that God would, would love us. So in verse 25, verse 24, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. <laughs> so they called him Esau. I like the way the scripture describes pregnancy and delivery. It's not th that the babies were delivered. It was, so when her days were fulfilled, <laughs> it's like, okay, she's put in her time, right? And her, her days are fulfilled. It's time for these babies to uh, come out. And sure enough, there were twins. And the oldest, he, he was red and hairy, red and hairy. And it was like a garment all over him. I've had some friends that could have been named Esau. Some dudes, it's like, dude, you, you are hairy. What a blessing, man. It's like, so I like teasing them, but they can grow beards and I can't grow beards. So I guess it, guess it all works out, right? Esau literally means hairy and red. And so that's how he, he got his name. He was, he was probably obviously very hairy, but it was, he was probably red hair as well. In verse 26, afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This is a crazy scene. Could you imagine giving birth to these twins? And here's Jacob, this little infant, like, no, I want to be the oldest, grabbing onto the heel. And they didn't name their kids until they were born. And so, of course, Jacob is going to be called heel catcher. His name means heel catcher, supplanter. So from birth, these guys get their names, and this is going to be Jacob's struggle, is to try to make things happen in his own strength, instead of relying upon the Lord, trying to manipulate and engineer situations to his own benefit, instead of letting God bring them to pass. Isaac's 60 years old when the twins are born. He was 40 years old when Rebecca and him got married. So there's 20 years of barrenness. Sometimes when we're reading the scripture, we read it in a few minutes. They're married, Isaac prays, conception takes place, and then we're like, why is things taking so slowly in my life? 
And then we look at the detail and we go, my goodness, this was 20 years. Isaac may have been pleading with God for a very long time. This prayer may have started fairly quickly when he realized, hey, we're not getting pregnant. We're not getting pregnant. We're not getting pregnant. And he pleads with God and pleads with God and pleads with God. But they wrestled with this, this barrenness for 20 years. So be encouraged. You know, if you feel like you're in a, a barren season and you're like, it feels like it's been decades. Well, take heart. You don't know what's coming around uh, the corner. So verse 27, so the boys grew. There's a lot of details to be filled in there. Twin boys growing up together. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man or a calm man dwelling in tents. It's amazing how God gives us unique personalities, doesn't it? Here you have twins, and Esau loves to be outside. And he loves to hunt, and he's really good at it. He's kind of the outdoors type of man. And then here's Jacob, and Jacob likes hanging out inside. He enjoys the air conditioning. He enjoys the furnace. He likes his high-speed Wi-Fi internet, right? And his coffee made just right. And he tends to hang out indoors. He's an indoor dweller. And these are their personalities that are wired into them. Verse 28, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you find dad, Isaac, he's favoring Esau because he's bringing home the bacon. He's like, oh man, he's bringing home some venison and some elk and this is so good. And he's like, Esau, just go ahead and barbecue it up. And then he's like, this is my boy over here. And then mom has Jacob hanging out in the kitchen. And he's like 25 years old, and he's like, Mom, can we make some chocolate chip cookies? And she's like, my boy, my boy, I just love him. You know, he's my boy, right? So you can see how pretty naturally this affection started to take place with Esau and Jacob. And I'm sure Esau loved to come by to Jacob and say, Mama's boy. You know, if you've got a brother, you know how that goes, right? Can I get an amen out of that one? Right. Or maybe it was just me. I would have said that to my brother for sure, right? In verse 29, now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So there's a play on words here. Is Edom means red. Esau means red and hairy. So you have the red man giving his appetite over to the red stew. So then he gets the name Edom, which means red. And his descendants would be called the Edomites. So it sticks for him. Esau has been hunting all day and Jacob's got this nice red stew all ready. And here comes Esau and he's like, give me something to eat. And the supplanter, the heel catcher has an idea. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. It seems like Jacob's got this planned out. He knows that Esau's out hunting and going to be hungry, wants some of his red stew. And they're saying, okay, you want this red stew? Well, the price today for you is your birthright. Now, if you're a parent, you've probably observed some of the bartering that happens between your kids. And us having four kids, I 
enjoy listening and hearing the different trades that have happened in the house over the years. Inevitably, though, it seems like the youngest always gets the worst end of the trade. Have you observed that? Especially like when they're elementary school and they're kind of getting this idea that trading can happen. And then an older sibling comes along and says, hey, how about this, 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 and this? And then by the time you hear about it, you're like, dude, you got suckered. Like, you just got taken on that one, right? Here's a, here's a lesson on, on bartering. But in this family, it's the exact opposite. Jacob's going to school Esau. By the time this is all done, it's the younger who has gotten the better end of the deal. But this does show Jacob's heart of, of manipulation. He's trying to make God's promises happen in, in his life instead of rely upon the Lord. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is the birthright to me? Do you think he was really about ready to die? You know, but he feels so hungry. He's like, if I don't eat right now, I'm going to die. Then Jacob said, swear to me of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau goes for it. He takes bean soup over his birthright. The birthright, remember, was a double inheritance. Abraham was a very wealthy man. Isaac was a wealthy man. And he gets a double portion of inheritance with the birthright. He also has the spiritual blessing of the family. This blessing that was upon Abraham and upon Isaac, it would go to the one with the birthright. And with it would come the family responsibility. And he says, I would rather value a bowl of soup. I would rather value red stew, this delicious, good meal right now, instead of the spiritual blessing of the Lord. And we're warned in the book of Hebrews to not be like Esau. And it's interesting in the warning, it warns us about bitterness, it says to be careful about bitterness lest you become like Esau. If we're not careful and we allow our hearts to get hard with bitterness and unforgiveness, that can lead to where we don't care about the things of God. We don't care about the spiritual blessing of the Lord anymore. We wouldn't connect bitterness to that, would we? We would think, I'm just mad at that person because they've taken advantage of me and I'm a victim of their sin or their poor choices, but our heart gets hard through that bitterness and it gets calloused. And if we're not careful before long, we don't care about the things of God. And then we'll say, I'll take this moment of pleasure over the blessing of God. And that's always the choice with sin, isn't it? Is we can say, there's gonna be this moment of pain. I'm gonna have to say no to the soup. I'm going to have to look Jacob in the eyes and say, you know what? That looks like really good stew, but you keep your stew because I want the blessing of God. I'm going to say no to sin right now, even though it's difficult, because I know that it's going to lead uh, to blessing. So it's a, a moment of pain for a lifetime of blessing, or it's a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of pain. So when we're being tempted with sin and when we're being tempted to not care about the things of God, to not care about our relationship with God and the kingdom of God, just remember Esau. 
go, Lord, please help me to not be like Esau. Even though Jacob is going about it the wrong way, he does care about the things of God. He does want this blessing upon his life. We get into chapter 26. You guys ready for one more chapter? It's a good one. It's a good chapter. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. God allows this famine in the land, similar to what Abraham goes through. There's going to be famines in our lives. There's going to be financial difficulty. There's going to be trials and tribulations. And those famines test us. And they really reveal to us where we're at with the Lord. Abraham goes to the king of Abimelech. The king, uh, Abimelech the king. Did I say Abraham? Isaac goes to Abimelech. Abraham also went to an Abimelech. Not the same king. Abimelech is probably a title, like Pharaoh or Caesar. So probably a, a different king, but of this region of the Philistines. And God speaks. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Remember, Abraham went to Egypt in a famine. And God speaks to Isaac, says, I want you to stay in the promised land. Dwell in this land. I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I give all these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Very clear directive from God. Stay in the land. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. And he gives the same promise to Isaac that he gave to Abraham. I think the application for us is don't jump ship in a famine. Don't jump ship in a famine. If you know God has called you somewhere, stay there until God calls you out. I think the calling out has to be as clear, if not clearer, than the call to come. So God called you to this place in life, okay? God's called me to work here. God's called me to this church, you know? God has called me to this marriage. Obviously, that's not something that God calls you out of, amen? That's a commitment for a a lifetime. But it's easy when it's difficult and there's famine. That, That famine tests that trust in God. And God comes and affirms Isaac and says, I want you to stay in the land. This is where I've called you, and this is where I'm going to bless you. He leaves Isaac with Abraham's example of obedience in verse 5, and we see Isaac following it in verse 6. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, which is inside the promised land. It's on the southern end. It's southern Palestine. It's closer, close to Egypt, but it's not in Egypt. Isaac obeys. In verse 7, And the men of the place asked about his wife. This is going to sound familiar. And he said, She's my sister. For he was afraid to say, She's my wife. Because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. This is exactly what Abraham did on two occasions. 
It's easy to follow in the footsteps of your father, to make the same sinful choice as your parents, but you don't have to. That's the good news. We don't have to because we're new creations in Christ. I'm sure Isaac had heard the stories about Abraham's decision, and he chooses to go in this same path. So here God had spoken to him, don't be afraid, I'm with you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to bless you, but Isaac's struggling, and he decides I'm going to stay in the land, but I'm going to lie about the nature of my relationship with my, my wife. Verse 8, now it came to pass when he'd been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. The New King James translates this very politely for us. In the Hebrew, the word showing endearment literally is caressing. They were caressing to the point where Abimelech's like, wait a second, that is not his sister. That is his, his wife. What, what in the world is going on here? Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. That may be one of the more selfish statements in the Bible, right? I came up with this lie to protect myself, that I didn't want to die on account of, of her. And both with Abraham and Isaac, they're, they're failing to trust God. They're failing to put the needs of their wife before their own. And thankfully, God is, is faithful in the midst of their shortcomings, and God's faithful in the midst of our shortcomings. And Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. Now, this is interesting. This is a Philistine king, pagan, doesn't know the Lord, doesn't have a relationship with God, but has a belief about sexual integrity. He says, look, why didn't you say anything? Because one of our guys could have ended up having sex with your wife, and then you would have brought guilt upon us. I don't think that's the way the pagan world thinks anymore, Right? That's not the way unbelievers think about sex any, any longer. And so it, it does show how things have changed, unfortunately. In verse 11, So Abimelech charged all of his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This is God's grace in spite of Isaac. And Abimelech gives this carte blanche protection. Don't let anybody touch his wife or Abraham. Verse 11, then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. God wasn't done with his promise to Isaac, even though he sinned. And Isaac doesn't stay in his failure. He moves forward past his failure and chooses to plant seed in the land that God has caused, caused him to dwell. Now remember, it's famine. Things shouldn't grow, but God blesses him in spite of the famine, and Here's this crop a hundredfold. Verse 13, the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. God's blessing upon him. For he had possession of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so the Philistines envied him. He prospers to the point where the Philistines are like, what? What in the world's going on with, with Isaac? And they become jealous of his blessings. We need to be careful when God is blessing someone that we don't get envious. It's really easy to be like, man, 
how come that's not happening to me, right? And envy can really get the best of us. It's interesting, a lot of times, those that have persecuted the nation of Israel, they're envious of God's blessing that's upon the nation of Israel. They see the prosperity that God has brought upon the nation of Israel, and it causes this envy and hatred of of Israel. In verse 15, Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells, which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So they're coming against Isaac here, and they're going back with these wells that Abraham had dug, and they fill them in with dirt, and then they say to Isaac, You need to, to get away from us. You're, you're too mighty. There's not room for both of us to dwell. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. So Isaac avoids conflict. He says, Okay. I'll just move on, and goes to the valley. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. So Isaac goes back and he redigs the wells that Abraham had dug that had been refilled after Abraham's death. I really like this. This really speaks to me. Because the wells that worked for my fathers and my mentors will work for me if I will go back and redig them. And thankfully, my dad's a believer. My parents are believers. And so what's worked for my dad in his relationship with the Lord is going to work for me as well. What has worked for men that have mentored me and challenged me and invested in my life where, where they have found living water is, is going to be true for me as well. And ultimately, the living water is Jesus, isn't it? And so you can look around at those that have gone before you, or even in your own life, have there been prior places of refreshment between you and the Lord that the enemy has packed with dirt? Maybe our flesh has packed with dirt. We've drifted from those things, and we feel dry, and we feel parched, well, you know what? Those wells are still good. Christ is still a faithful source of living water. It just needs to be redug. It needs to be recultivated and dig back deep into those places. But a lot of times we're looking for something new. We're going, okay, here I'm parched. I don't feel refreshed. So instead I'm going to go try something outside of the Lord. And that's not going to provide refreshment. It's time to dig deep. It's time to go back to those wells and dig, and dig, and dig, and it's going to work. It's going to work. It worked for your fathers. It worked for you at one point in your life. Go back to those well-established places of refreshment. Verse 19, and Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. So in addition to digging out these old wells, they also dug and found a new well with running water. The Middle East is dry and arid, and water is so important in Israel to this day. To find a well with running water, huge blessing for all of these crops and servants that Isaac has. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, This water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they quarreled with him. Esek literally means quarrel. So he names the well 
quarrel. These guys are like, no, this doesn't belong to you. This belongs to us. The Philistines were coming and claiming it for themselves. Now to Isaac's character as a peacemaker, he continues to move on. You could make war off of this well, but he chooses to move on. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one as well. So he called it sitna, which means enmity or fighting. In verse 22, and he moved from there and dug another well. Amazing. Amazing. This guy just keeps digging. The perseverance, I'm going to keep digging. God's called me to dwell in this land. Here my enemies, they've refilled my father's wells. I'll dig those out. I'll dig some more wells. And then they claim them for their own. So I'll go and dig another one. I'll go and dig another one. Church, is the enemy attacking you? Is he coming against you? Don't give up. Keep digging. That's the time to persevere. Remember finding Nemo? Dory, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Well, you just keep digging. Digging stinks. You know, it is no fun to dig. I remember one of my first missionary trips was on the Baja of Mexico to an orphanage that my church, my home church growing up in, ran. And our job on this trip was to dig out a hole for a swimming pool for the kids to, to be able to enjoy, which was great. And it was well, well worth it. But that was like my first exposure to digging in really hot weather, right? So here I'm this teenage kid and I was skinnier than I am now. I know that's hard to imagine, but it was real, right? Had to run around to get wet in the shower. And, and here I am, just digging all day long, right? Hot, 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 digging, digging, digging. It is no fun to dig. And guys, sometimes that's what the Christian life is like. It's not fun. It's not glamorous. It's hot. It's sweaty. It's hard. But you keep going. You keep going. You keep digging. And in time, there's a breakthrough. And we'll see this, this breakthrough take place. And they did not quarrel over it. So he dug another, and they didn't quarrel over it, verse 2. So he called its name Rehoboth because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means spacious. Ah, God has provided space for me to be able to dwell. This is a difficult lesson in life, but God uses contention and fighting to cause us to move on to where there's spacious room for us to dwell, if we'll choose to do so. If we'll choose to keep pressing on, keep moving, keep, keep digging. And when the Lord does provide that space, what a blessing. If he's provided that space in your job, and you're like, man, there's a space for me to dwell here. There's an opportunity for me to work, and they appreciate my work. Oh, that's the Lord's provision. Has he provided space in an apartment to rent, in a, in a home to rent, a home to purchase? And you're like, oh, th- this is space that the Lord has, has provided. And I think Isaac is enjoying the space and realizes that it's provision of God because of all that he's gone through. And without struggle, you don't enjoy the space that God has provided. If you don't go through hard times, then you don't realize, oh, what a blessing that God has carved this out for me. And Isaac's in this place of rejoicing. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Isaac must have been struggling with fear. 
as he moves to Beersheba, still in the promised land. And God says, don't be afraid. The answer to fear is God's presence. I'm with you, so you don't have to be afraid. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. So he responds to God appearing to him through worship, through building an altar and calling upon the name of the Lord, and also by digging a well, by choosing to place down his roots. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahozath, one of his friends, and Philcol, the commander of his army. Now this is the same Abimelech when Isaac lied about his wife. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? He says, this doesn't seem good, guys. Abimelech, why are you showing up with the commander of your army? But they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Now catch this, since we've not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Is this quite how this went down? These were the guys that were filling up the wells. These were the guys that when they dug a new well, they're like, nope, nope, that, be- that belongs to me. But now they come in and they say, hey, we have been nothing but good to you. Notice Isaac's response. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. Isaac's a peacemaker. And God says, blessed is the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Isaac could have started a war here. But instead, he takes the covenant of peace and he trusts the Lord. He says, I've lost a lot of wells in all of this. And here he is in Beersheba, a new location, and he's still digging a new well. He still doesn't know if there's going to be a well in Beersheba, but he's willing to live in peace with his neighbors. I love this in 32. It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So they called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. On the very day that Isaac makes peace, here comes his servant saying, guess what? We found water. And this last well is named Sheba, which means oath, fitting for this covenant of peace that that was made. God provided, God provided. And as we live in peace, God is able to provide. God sees peace as a, a beautiful thing. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he took wives of Judith, the daughter of Birhai the Hittite, and Basemath. That is quite a name. It's a girl's name. Please do not give that to any of your daughters. And Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and there were a grief of mind, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Why would Isaac and Rebekah be grieved over this? Because the Hittites didn't know the Lord. And they knew that this would draw away Esau's heart. And you've got to know this if you're considering getting married, is you need to marry someone who's in Christ, who knows Christ, who trusts Christ, who follows Christ, who loves Jesus. Because if you don't, it's very easy for them to pull your heart away from the Lord. 
And a lot of times we think, well, I'll be the influence that brings them uh, to Christ. But that doesn't always happen, and it results in a lot of, a lot of heartache. A few applications for us tonight is God's faithfulness to his promise to go from Abraham to Isaac. There was famine in the land, but the famine didn't match God's power and his ability. God's going to be faithful to his promise. Don't forfeit God's promises for a moment of pleasure. Don't do it, right? When we're in that moment of temptation like Esau, don't go for the red stew. Don't go for the enemy's chili that he's got cooked up. He'll cook up some pretty good-looking bean stew, right? So you can't live without this. You've got to give in to the lust and the cravings of, of your flesh and go, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I'm not going to take the, the moment of pleasure for a lifetime of pain. I'm going to say no to sin and yes to the Lord and run to Christ and ask for his help. Don't forfeit God's promise for a moment of pleasure. Fear mocks faith. We see that in Isaac's life. He's got the faith to dwell where God wants him to be, but then as he struggles with fear, he lies about Rebekah. And fear is dangerous, and God wants to rescue our hearts from fear and bring us to a place of faith. And then finally, persevere. Keep digging. Don't give up. Do not give up. If there's quarreling and there's contention and people that are upset at you and there's a famine and things don't seem to be going well, you go to the next place and you dig again and you dig again and you dig again until you get to your Rehoboth, until you get to that place where it's spacious and the Lord has provided. And then in that moment, don't forget to worship. Don't forget to build your altar and go, God, you have provided. I'm so thankful for this. Some of the greatest ministries have been birthed out of contention. And I wish it wasn't that way. But we even see it with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. What busted those two guys up? Contention over John Mark. But they both continued to serve the Lord, and the Lord was faithful. The Lord was faithful. Sometimes we won't move without it getting uncomfortable. <laughs> we'll just stay where we're at as long as it's good. And so God comes along and he says, all right, things are going to get uncomfortable. And all of a sudden there's some contention in the job. There's some contention in, in the neighborhood. And the Lord's like, I'm moving you on. And in the midst of being moved on, don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Don't get bitter. Keep digging. And digging's not fun but it leads to living water. Keep pressing into Jesus. Keep loving Jesus. Keep serving Jesus, and you'll come to your, your Rehoboth. So let's stand together and let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your way of teaching us and through the life of Abraham and Isaac. God, as we come and spend some time in worship and communion, would you, would you meet us afresh? And just allow us to apply these lessons that we need to hear from you. Lord, and would you give us strength to persevere? Would you give us strength to continue on? And Lord, in your provision, would you bring forth those springs of refreshment, that space where there's peace, that Rehoboth. So we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.